This is Swampside Chats. A podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we tackle another listener request. This one is a two-part article written by Robert Brenner around the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, entitled, The Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, The Roots of the Crisis. He said, now I'm under attack by the biggest force in military history. Excuse me. Obama wants to kill me. To take away the freedom of our country. To take away our free housing. Our free medicine. Our free education. Our free food. And replace it with American-style thievery called capitalism. But all of us in the third world know what that means. It means corporations run the countries, run the world, and the people suffer. Muammar Gaddafi, July 2011. <laughs> he knew it was at stake. We're here to talk about a similar situation. Talking about the fall of the Soviet Union. Specifically, uh, a piece, fairly prescient piece, uh, written at the time by Mr. Uh, Bobby B. Robert Brenner. The title is The Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, The Roots of the Crisis. This was a uh, listener request patience and are getting to this mm-hmm. and uh yeah so where should we start well i guess we should start from the beginning in that this was written what january through february 1991 so before the real calamitous like end of everything but kind of during i guess i don't know well he, he describes it as an ongoing crisis um, right. and yeah, so he's right. Like the Soviet Union hasn't collapsed yet, but he does a pretty good job of sort of gaming out what's happening here and where this whole thing could go and how it could break. Yeah, probably the biggest difference in tone between the first part and the second part, which is in I think what March April I think, or it's at at least released in March April, is that. In the second part, he seems certain where this is going. Well, yeah, the first part is more of a survey of the peculiar nature of the Soviet Union itself. And it's honestly one of the better encapsulations of the Soviet system, especially in such a short space of text. The second part gets into more what was happening at that moment, specifically historically, and the particular way that the breakdown of the Eastern Bloc took place and, you know, its implications at the time for the trajectory of the then still existing Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's, um, it's tough to say where he's drawing this from. It seems like, it seems like he's kind of pulling from Ticton, but maybe without bending the stick as far as, as to say something like it's like a non-mode of production. <laughs> or to say the law of motion is waste. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he He basically just kind of uh, lays out how what the driving engine of thing how things got done what what the particular pos- uh, class positions of everybody involved were and how that contributed to the way that the Soviet Union functioned and how it didn't. Um, this piece I think wisely doesn't get too hung up on labels or you know settling the ongoing 
you know, Marxian debate about, you know, what is the Soviet Union? Um, yeah. I think, I we, think he's more <laughs> basically trying to offer a short layout of its dynamics in order to understand what is happening at the time specifically. Yeah, there's a reason that his analysis is so succinct in that, um, okay, yeah, Brenner is an economic historian. He's an historian in a sense, but he thinks like an, an economist in an important way in that he always has a rational actor model of different like class positions going in his work, which gives him a lot in common with like, you know, some of the like formal ability to like game out certain interactions. And Brenner's like particularly good at laying out the like a formal model without showing you the math essentially, and then applying it to a an historical dynamic to try to explain the historical dynamic through creating a picture of class interests that has the you know formal gameish quality but then also incorporates you know historical changes into it um yeah the this first part is fairly succinct and is mo you know the first like chunk of it is just a description of the class interests of managers basically Brenner seems to be especially drawn to crisis as like a locus for his thinking because I've noticed that a lot of his most recent output has been based around a lot of the existent volatil volatility that we have observed in late capitalism. Um, his output, you know, in terms of longer works, especially seems to kind of peter out um, around the time of the, you know, the Great Recession. Like he, he talked a lot about it a lot after that, but I haven't seen as much from him in recent years. Um, and I think maybe I could see how, you know, especially if he had written this, why he could kind of put down the Soviet Union as a thing to look at. Because he seemed, you know, probably, I get the sense that he felt like he kind of had a pretty good sense of what it was. And because there is no longer any crisis there, you know, I could understand your uh, attention wandering elsewhere and trying to understand, you know, the particular nature of the system as it functions now in all of its weirdness, you know. Even in the beginning, he's making a reference to, well, yeah, I'm going to talk about the Soviet Union, but, you know, let's talk about the global crisis of profitability. That's my, like, big bugaboo. And, yeah, I'm still defending it. You know, what? Like, right. especially especially at this time, because, um, you know, Brenner adopts a lot of Marxian economic, like, moves that are sort of uh, neoclassical inspired, which, if you kind of run the numbers on them, they undermine the traditional formal models for... Uh, a falling rate of profit explanation of, of prices, or even that the profit rate would fall given these mechanisms. So the fact that he kind of has maybe some, like some DNA in common with people who are essentially just arguing against, you know, the falling rate of profit, like as a feature of capitalism, um, or the tendency for the potential falling rate of profit, whatever. Um, Brenner is always squaring the circle and, that could point to some weaknesses in his work. Like he, whenever he talks about economic crisis, he tends to talk a little more ad hoc about what this and that thing is doing. But I think what's important about it and why, I don't know, what makes him like interesting is that he's like kind of just allowing numbers and history to speak more so than letting the modeling dictate what he sees. Hmm. And that is like rare, 
you know, someone that's engaging with the modeling without kind of giving way entirely. Like, I don't know. Well, yeah, because he is, at the end of the day, he is an historian and not an economist. Right. Yeah. And so even though he's deploying this economic thinking, like, he always, he's always situating it. I think, like, he's, um, in a lot of ways, a paradigm for how to do, like, integrated inquiry that, like, takes stuff from different disciplines and puts them together in a way that doesn't feel like, this doesn't feel like a hodgepodge. This is, you know, pretty succinct. He doesn't get bogged down in labels, but you know what he thinks. It's a, this is a non-capitalist, exploitative mode of production with a bureaucratic ruling class. Like Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and that there's, you know, whether you want to call the bureaucracy a class or not, it has, you know, some kind of antagonistic relationship to the working class. But within this matrix of relationships, you know, there are limits in the ways that they can exploit them. Yeah. Like I think like, I think maybe it's easy to I mean, you know, obviously there is like this kind of legitimating ideology of like workerism at the heart of the Soviet Union that might also put some kind of like ideological restrictions, but also, you know, because they because the bureaucrats the bureaucrats lack the power to hire and fire. Right. You know, that base, that that sets a certain that sets a certain high end in terms of, you know, intensive exploitation. It has to be extensive. Yeah, it's kind of funny because the picture he paints is that everyone in the economy essentially has or like most people in the economy have have an incentive to actively hold up the planners productive like plans to improve productivity and in like any way and which forces a move towards instead of, you know, intensive production, as you were getting at, like extensive production, where in Mark in Marx's categories, you know, instead of producing Instead of like a relative productivity where you, you know, improve your machinery or you improve a technique and you get more output with the same input, we just like need more input and more output and get the most out of it. We just need more and more and more. Yeah. Should I just read something like he says here? Yeah, sure. The particular form of antagonism of the working class, the bureaucracy in the workplace and vis-a-vis the state that constitutes the central barrier for the system in securing efficient allocation or increasing productivity because they control neither the output surplus nor the means of production. Working people have no incentive to either to improve their labor or provide the information on their own local production uh, that the planners need to plan and coordinate. This is why in some ways you can't call it a planned economy. In some ways maybe a command economy might be like a better label, but I guess you could say it's plan in the sense that like, you know, you can make a plan. <laughs> like we make plans all the time. Yeah. We make plans and the working class laughs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, like, you know, you can have a shithead roommate who's like 26 and is planning to, you know, join the Marines or something, you know? Yeah. It's a yeah, plan. Sure. That's right. a plan. Essentially, Brenner doesn't believe that planning is impossible. He just thinks it's impossible in the Soviet Union because there's no way to get people to cooperate with the plan. There's no one has an interest in the plan. It's like like their interests are directly like aligned against it. Like to flesh out the managerial interest, basically like labor power is not a commodity. You can't fire people or there's strict there's a lot of incentives against firing people it just in general like firms are not market dependent the way that they are in capitalism even during the reform socialist periods where they introduce markets and such 
you're not strictly dependent on markets for inputs and outputs, particularly not labor markets. You can't go out of business. You don't have to maximize profits. Sort of the dark side of this is that, therefore, there's really no way... Like, so first of all, managers, yes, they have like a lot of incentive to just get as many inputs as possible and therefore to get as much outputs as possible, then to conceal the information about their input capacity from the planning board so that the managers like can produce the most and the individual managers can get promotions or awards or whatever. Like they can get recognition for being great planners. They have an interest in you know getting the most production and the only way they really have available to do that is through direct physical coercion through police force or kgb agents or i mean the picture that he paints is pretty dire and i'm sure that the level of violence like de-escalated from the you know high stalinist period but if this was like a regular f- feature of labor in the USSR, it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I have this crank theory about this that it's a lot of, like, I always, whenever I see documentaries about North Korea and you see everybody, like, is all very stiff and out of tension or whatever, I imagine it's probably more chill, like, when, like, the boss isn't around, you know? When, like, the bureaucrat's not around, when the camera's not around, and then everybody just has to, like, be on their business. It's, you know, this is like shit if you've worked at any restaurant or anywhere, you know. Oh, re- regional manager's here. We got to, you know, everyone stand up straight, you know. You got, if you got time to lean, you got time to clean, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I imagine this is probably a factor, you know, in this kind of system as well. It's like, okay, with no okay, you know, the important people aren't watching. Let's get, you know, let's get, let's have a smoke break. Yeah, but you know. how often how often does the boss like get the cops to beat the shit out of you to work? Like that that's a and even if they don't kill you, you know, or or even if it's just really like a threat of it, like that's just not like normal. I mean, look, that that happens like a lot, but like that's not, you know, normal working conditions for Americans in in the 1990s unless you're in prison. Yeah, right. Um well, yeah, that's yeah, that is the omnipresent like, you know, I'm not. I'm not saying like it was like workers' paradise or whatever, but no, no, for sure, we, we also, are past that phase of the podcast. <laughs> I also don't think that you know it was like this exactly the kind of it wasn't like it wasn't like being on the Death Star. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, no, there there is like a, a kind of like relief, even despite you know everything else, and you know we're reading about the collapse, so this isn't like a glowing endorsement. Just reading that like managers can't fire anybody, and it's basically in. It's their incentive is to hire everyone and just like ply them with wage, you know, increases and, and promotions and just to try to buy your cooperation and stabi- and stability. And so like, you know, being someone who's like, you know, terminally underemployed, that sounds pretty good. Even right, if it that's means what I'm that saying. I really got to shut the fuck up. And, you know, obviously this is a this is. This is a complete fantasy because, you know, you, you, <laughs> like if, you know, criticizing uh, the class character of the USSR gets you thrown into the insane asylum and the, uh, in, you know, the 70s onwards, like, you know, being queer is, is a whole other ball of wax unless you're in East Germany. But like, and then even, even then, even if you're in East Germany, honestly. But anyway, that's, that's a whole other discussion. But sure. um, the, the point is, is that like, you can see 
how this stuck around for a little while, even if, <laughs> if even if it wasn't going to stick around for much longer. Mm-hmm. Like that. Um, and I, I guess, you know, the more that we read this, the more that we're going to be reflecting on the historical counterexample in China, you know, that directly learns from this experience. And like, the thing that jumps out at me just to like make a general conclusion from this little point of political economy where coercion takes the role that it does is that you can't liberalize this system. You can't have this system with a human face because once you lose the jackboot, you actually lose the one thing that can drive a productivity gain. Uh, that's part of it. I don't know, do we do we just want to crack open this can of worms now, or should we re, like go re go like go deeper into yeah, the we, piece? Yeah, we can we can go deeper into the piece because yeah, we, we could get sidetracked. But I I don't know. Like so, here's the um. This was also interesting that uh, planners also have no management criteria because workers and management have an incentive to obscure information to the planners, right? right? So planners have to establish a personal information to secure performance. And, you know, where you see corruption, right? Quote, unquote, we see the only thing that's keeping this system running. Like, yeah, that's what's <laughs> like, greasing the wheels. They don't yeah. call it that for nothing. Right. <laughs> and because of that particular, like, tributary relationship Brenner ends up concluding that this is more like an ancient regime society than advanced capitalism now that might sound like you know a a cold war soundbite to most people but you know Brenner is like a scholar of the Tudor period of England or whatever so I I don't know his word means more to me than most well and this extensive what's interesting is how he notes that this this um Extensive mode of extraction basically makes the like the working class itself like the one of the primary resources in, within the system. Yeah. He says, like, on the other hand, because the working class is in a sense merged with the means of production, yeah. bureaucrats and managers find it especially difficult to seize control over the labor process so as on their own initiative to transform the productive process. You know, so you know, it's almost you know, like the working class because like the allocation of their labor was such a like important resource, especially you know, intra the bureaucracy for in terms of their own prestige and so forth. They almost are like a form of fixed capital in a weird way. <laughs> well, no, that, that's honestly the thing that kept creeping into my head as sort of intrusive thought was that yeah, like the the word merged that kind of gave me the creeps. It sounds like like slavery. Like if if you put it in that abstract of of a form, you know what I mean. Like, and well, I think there's probably a difference between slavery and this in some formal way. Like, what he ends up describing is that like because the whole system has to run on this coercive, you know, extraction process. Workers essentially are substantially, and the working class in general is substantially doesn't have political citizenship because the whole point of the apparatus is to fucking like juice them. Damn. It's, it's, it's not slavery, but it's like, it's slavery with extra steps. (laughs) Well, as as Rick and Morty said, (laughs) 
people. It's not, yeah, I mean, I, God. That's slavery! It's society! That just sounds like slavery with extra steps! Ooh la la, someone's gonna get laid in college. It's, but, it, okay, so it's not capitalism. There's certain ways that it, 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 you know, resembles capitalism. But I think Brenner is so good on the things that, it just has completely different fucking rules for doing anything. <laughs> like, uh, and, and, you know, there's no fucking, there's no labor power commodity. There's something that's arguably like a wage, but there's no labor power commodity. He talks a lot about the productive forces as the, as, as being like a big factor. This is ironic in a sense because Brenner famously puts the relations of production sort of as the class struggle is the motor of history more so than, you know, uh, the productive forces led vision of, of historical materialism. The meaning of his work in his mind was to sort of dispense with the productive forces led way of looking at things because of the causal priority of human agents and, you know, class actors in deciding to turn on or off the spigot of productive forces. Could that be because we're talking here about like a modern era civilization where like technological dynamism is maybe a bigger component, especially a big thing that did the Soviet Union in was the fact that they weren't able to increase productivity at rates matching that of the West, but they still had to compete militarily in terms of raw output. So the military production becomes increasing, an increasing burden on the rest of production just in order to keep up in this, mili in this global Cold War. Yeah, there's... Uh... The old Trotskyist, uh, you know, ortho uh, heterodox Trotskyist, like Tony Cliff or whatever, had a, I think it was, this was his theory, the permanent arms economy theory. That was something like that. But I think even without the focus on uh, military hardware, that military hardware is sort of just like uh, the most obvious example of an industry where like, you know, just raw productive power matters more so than the kind of Diver diversification and like, I don't know, like the, the, the leisure society stuff that ends up becoming much more important post-war. I mean, he touches on it in here, though. Mm -hmm. Like he talks about that. He also does talk about, yeah, their inability to develop a vibrant consumer economy that becomes a problem uh, as things are opened up and people kind of see what's... Yeah, what they're missing. What, what they're missing, yeah. I mean, you know, I thought I was, you know, missing out you know, being all COVID quarantine on Instagram or something, but Christ. I forget what movie it was, but when, like, can you imagine just, like, wandering into West Germany after the wall falls and, like, just seeing all kinds of, like, dumb shit, like, wandering to a Spencer's Gifts? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I don't even know if that, that existed at the time. <laughs> Or if it exists in Germany, but you know, just wander into. Yeah, like, I, can, uh, I can buy Halloween masks all year round. <laughs> Got what you know, yeah. Sanrio Hello Kitty store or whatever. Or... <laughs> I don't know, like just being like, what, what is this? Like, yeah, that whole thing was yeah, that was such a weird. I mean, you know, they literally had like David Hasselhoff on the you know, on the yeah. fucking thing singing so. I would have I would have turned back honestly. <laughs> At that point, I was like, "This okay? This is this is what you, this is the best you have to offer." 
Uh, you know what? The, the scene I'm thinking of is from this nostalgia flick called Goodbye Lenin about East uh, Germany. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, seen they, the tra- I've never watched that, but I, I'm familiar with the premise. It's, it's a good one. It's, uh, it's fun. There's a scene where they, wa- they wander across the border into a porn shop, and you just see these, like, I don't know, this, like, you know, chorus of, like, you know, huge coat, miserable looking, like, ex East German citizens just like grim in this grim fascination, just looking at this like weird porn. Like, <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of you ever see Red Heat? No, I've never seen that. Uh, are you familiar with it though? You know what it mm-hmm. is? No, I don't. I don't know. Uh, what so, it is. Uh, Walter Hill made a buddy cop because you know, remember the buddy cop uh, movie? So, in the 80s, uh, Walter Hill made one starring uh, John, sorry, Jim Belushi and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, I think Jim Belushi plays a Chicago cop, of course, and Arnold Schwarzenegger is a KGB agent sent to the United States to like catch a drug trafficker. No fucking shit. That's that's hilarious. And there's a part where like Arnold is like in a hotel room, and he like has to put a quarter into the TV to get it to run. And he just like sees like the this this the filth on TV, and he's just like capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! There's another great scene where he, they they talk about the uh, I can put the sound drop in on this where they talk about uh, the drug drug stuff and like the Chinese and I think like Jim Belushi's like man, if you got it so figured out because the whole movie like Arnold's talking about how great the Soviet Union is. <laughs> And he's like, if you got stuff so figured out there, how come you got drugs there too? Like, how come you couldn't get rid of it? And then, like, Arnold's like, the Chinese, they found the Chinese way. find way. Right after revolution, they line up all drug dealers, all drug addicts, take them to public square, and shoot them in back of head. Hey, I never worked here. Fucking politicians wouldn't go for it. Shoot them first. Oh, Jesus. See Ronald Reagan's America. Communists aren't all that bad. Yeah, we got more. That literally is the point of the movie. Like, hey, we got more in common than we think. Yeah, I like it. Um. <laughs> all right, so we have firms hoarding labor and machinery, maximize potential outputs irrespective of demand. Um, he he does a historical evolution of the system. You know, hypercentralization, uh, surplus is brought under control of bureaucracy and then he credits soviet collective farming as basically just destroying their agriculture for an entire epic and that the five-year plans basically part of their goal is to bring the working class under terrorist discipline i'm just doing some direct quotes here because i think his language is it's pretty forthright. Like you can tell what his politics are, but he never goes into it. And I, and I kind of find that attractive because that whole like you know state capitalist whatever debate that you know you can normally have about this is is usually like a coded political debate. And while I, I don't know, I wasn't always this way, but I, I kind of like ethically and politically, I I find myself aligned with state, the you know people that are doing state capitalist theory, but I don't find the substance of the theory makes sense to me so brenner's like brenner's tone you know hits me 
He's really one of the best in the biz. We thought about inviting him on here, but we don't know where he is. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully he's safe. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, he's probably he might be retired. He's he's up there. Someone should steal whatever like cryostasis they're doing to keep Biden going and use it to like let Robert Brenner live unnaturally beyond his years. And, you know, like some people, you know, on some level, somebody like Noam Chomsky lives for this shit. Like he'll still go and have like Zoom debates with people about, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's and, real. And he, and he looks terrible. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, some people, I could see some people being like, no, nah, I'm good. <laughs> yeah like especially after that fucking year like i think a lot of people are re- rethought their lives a lot of teachers rethought their lives in particular yeah 100 percent. so where where are we at here we've covered most of the top here and basically you know we have a choice here is it going to be there's been a stalling out because there's no way to transition from extensive to intensive accumulation in a way the soviet system could do that first part of capitalism that marx talks about but not the second part and that's apparently where the real strength of the value form comes in the real resilience of the value form yeah the only ways out are a turn to capitalism or to democratically planned socialism i just want to add an asterisk that you know he always has that as a possibility even, you know, in his most pessimistic note at the end of the second essay. That, like... Yeah, it, it keeps coming in where he's like, you know, but the working class could do something. They could do something. Could happen. How do you feel about that? Because I, I, on the one hand, like, kind of respect it in a way because, like, you know, here and there, like, a lot of these people at least started out, like, a lot of the reformers that, you know, end up, you know, t- destroying uh, the Soviet system, you know, have these, you know democratic socialist hopes like they're hoping for some kind of baltic sweden situation well i mean you know it just it 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 just shows that he's a marxist like <laughs> you know you are at bottom like a partisan for the working class and you but more importantly you understand that the working class is really the only agent that can deliver these kind of necessary social changes because you know him looking at the array of the players here in this period where else could something progressive possibly come from? Yeah, but I mean, I'm I'm just noting it because it's like he pretty much sees the writing on the wall that it's we're probably headed for a total collapse into capitalism. Like, but he yeah. he never well, and not even into capitalism, into like some like deeply dysfunctional like yes. third worldization of the Eastern yes. Bloc. Yeah, not just capitalism, but something horrible <laughs> that is is yeah it, which is exactly what happens like his his work is very prescient like right that that is that is what's most striking about this reading it is how you know and especially how this must have stood at the time i don't know where this was originally published but how i think, it would have I think stood it's in- here in against the current like i think on this website with fucking terrible copy editing like my god in contrast to like the the euphoria of like okay finally these people will finally have the relief they need oh my god where you know the free, visible hand of the market is going to bring them the, all the Nintendos and jeans and pornography they could have ever wanted you know <laughs> right right it's good you know we're, they're going to have a McDonald's in every corner uh, they're going to have MTV 
you know they're gonna have everything every all what everything all the bounty that you know no like he basically is like this is no this no, is they're gonna, just gonna end gonna be they're just headed for they're just gonna be i don't know i guess we can get into this like he basically what he recognizes is they the economic underdevelopment due to and because he the reason he's outlining so much of this is to basically explain this matrix of relationships in order to basically just point out that there's a particular kind of underdevelopment that took place as a result of all this that leaves them uh, singularly ill-equipped to compete on a global market. And so if you just open the floodgates to global capital, they're fucked. Well, not even just like global capital, like, you know, in, in a way also like just, just, just having like liberal, like a, like a more liberal society will even like the expectations of bourgeois culture like will like creep in including demands for political liberty like it's not all empty like genes and consumer choice kind of stuff like it is you know that that stuff in you know again in my point of view ends up being like incompatible with this system let's see Th- there's a really interesting uh, brenner claims that in eastern europe ruling bureaucracy that wanted a transition to capitalist private property couldn't do it because the working class wouldn't let them essentially. And they outmaneuvered the working class in a way by finally allowing like political, like pluralism and, and, you know, more than one party. Like they formed a a coalition government with solidarity following the semi free elections in uh 1989 as he says and with with the goal of immediately establishing capitalist property yeah this is on that last part revolutionary process in eastern europe hence the ironic consequence of solidarity's triumph over the bureaucracy made possible by the unbreakable will of the polish working class was a new era of transition to capitalism over a period of only months the world historical question of the end of communist rule and of restoration of capitalism in an Eastern Bloc country was suddenly and unequivocally posed for the first time. And then he gets into some Gorby talk. The second essay is, is more, is more uh, Mr. Pizza Hut in this one. Yeah. Like, it basically, what you end up with, like, is, like, more or less like a power vacuum and not any kind of, like, peaceable... But any... But, so the first part, the second part of this, he emphasizes how, and he touches on this at the end of part one, uh, that basically Gorbachev wanted to kind of try and ride the tiger on this thing and use what's was happening as a way to bolster his reforms against the more conservative like elements of the bureaucracy. Um, but he wasn't really able to do that effectively. He basically says... Perhaps the most striking aspect of the East European revolutions is the ease with which they overturned the old regimes once this major prop was removed. It's now evident that the bureaucracies were never, they are never established deep roots in their societies and that they maintain themselves almost entirely by force, including the periodic armed intervention of the Soviet Union. Once this external buttress removed, the regimes collapsed. Uh, the increasingly intense and transigent violent resistance of the Old ruling strata, a common feature of almost all great revolutions, was completely absent. It was not only a sign of the minimal political legitimacy of the old ruling strata, but of their extreme demoralization. Yeah, so he kind of, on some level, yeah, also just seems to suggest there was a certain level of kind of exhaustion at work here, where there was just kind of a common recognition that what was happening was not working. But 
you know, that inability to conceive of some kind of alternative uh, is also something that I think, in a more abstract sense, kind of screwed them over. Um, because it's like, okay, we'll just try capitalism. But I remember reading about this. There was a kind of widespread naivete about what that would really mean amongst a lot of people at a lot of levels. Like, you know, like in the case of the Soviet Union, what it basically ended up doing was, yeah, people basically grabbing whatever asset, like the disintegration in the USSR that would come later was, you know, basically different uh, entrenched interests grabbing onto whatever assets they could and either finding ways to liquidate them or just kind of squatting on them in order to eventually, when things shake out, be able to extract some value, right? You know, it was basically, I think there's a phrase that Bertolucci uses in The Last Emperor. It's like, well, once once the play's over, all that's left is to, like, steal the scenery. Like, they, it, it was, you know, they, they, they replaced it with American-style thievery. <laughs> or rather, a unique style of thievery uh, that resulted once, once they basically lost the Cold War. Once they, you know, lost to the imperialists. <laughs> Well, you know, a lot of a lot of them became became like power brokers in the new economy. Like Right. Because and this is something that Brenner points out, you know, they weren't really in a good position to become effective capitalists, right? Like, you know, like he says here's something he says this, like members of the old bureaucratic class were not entrepreneurs. So its members are hardly prepared to preside over a dynamic development of the productive forces. Even the former factory managers, used to operating a system driven by politics rather than competition, are hardly prepared to assume roles as risk-taking, capital-advancing, technical innovators. Uh, great sales to foreign capital will be politically dangerous for any government, no matter how much it really wants them. But the firms are simply given over. But if the firms are simply given over to the former managers or even the workers to today who run them, highly unlikely. Uh, how are the citizens who are not managers or workers in a given firm to be compensated? Um, and this ties into his like observation that, again, their underdeveloped infrastructure is just not going to, it's just not going to cut it on the world market. The only thing, the only thing that they will really have um, is cheap is, is cheap labor supply. Cheap labor. But you have a population that is used to a certain kind of deal in the system that is going to be stripped away from them, and they'll and they're in the immediacy they're going to be compensated, you know as poorly or maybe worse than they were before when they were promised, you know, they would get their jeans and Nintendos if, if this whole thing went down. Jake, where's my jeans and Nintendos? <laughs> like, it, it's, you know, and then, of course, you know, all the, you know, Jeffrey Sachs and all those people, when none of the, when none of the you know, magical things that they promised were delivered. They're like, oh, well, the people there, they have to really want... They're, they're too stuck in their old ways. They have to want capitalism. They have to want freedom. Well, it's just like, okay, cool, dude. I mean, well, a bunch of them just, like, essentially blamed sabotage on the part of, like, ex-planners and managers and stuff. Like, they just resorted to conspiracy theories. Like, they couldn't understand... Yeah. Why <laughs> opening up, you know, these like vulnerable labor markets to the global market was going to destroy these people's standard of living? Yeah, he actually kind of compares the case. He doesn't compare it to China, but he does compare it to, to Korea and Taiwan. Um, and he goes like, he could, wait, there's another quote. 
Uh, flush with revolution and generally hostile to statism, the populations of the remade Eastern Europe are therefore less attractive candidates for capitalist exploitation than one might imagine. The new regime's anti-statism will tend to prevent them from creating the complex set of government-influenced institutions required for development today, and at least initially, they'll lack the repressive authoritarian apparatuses that are needed to ensure the stability and profits uh, through most of the developing world. You know, as a result, Eastern Europe is more likely to suffer a fate akin to that which capitalism has visited upon the third world than to enjoy the conditions of, like, say, Scandinavia or Northern Europe. Comparing that to basically to underdeveloped countries like Korea and Taiwan that also obviously had, like, Western assistance and a, you know, a strong state hand in the economy that was able to, to develop things as opposed to, like, this insane, like, uh, applying, like, late capitalist neoliberal model onto civilizations that are basically, like, 30 years behind. The evidence is shaken out that, you, especially, you know, the later you industrialize, you need a stronger state hand in the economy. I mean, you always need a state hand in, you know, creating the economy. That's the insight of institutional evolutionary economics, like uh, guys like Stiglitz, who were critics of the neoliberal shock therapy in the Soviet Union, the ex-Soviet Union. The thing about like Korea and Singapore, South Korea, is that um, they took essentially Leninist models without Marxism to do their like their market planning, <laughs> basically, and they you know phased out their state involvement. So the evidence shakes out that something like that is the optimal development model, right? Right, because like imperialism is still a factor. Right, like I, that's why that's why I was trying. Like one of the questions I started thinking about was like, yeah, well, why? How did? Why did China manage this better than the Soviet Union? There's there's a, there's number of reasons. One is yeah, they understood that you know the industry as the people who like Deng Xiaoping and like the others who undertook reforms understood quite rationally that the industry they had wasn't even up to the Soviet Union's level, let alone something that competed on the world market, and just a total opening up and marketization it's would immediately fuck them. So, you know, they, they developed this idea that they called, like, the birdcage economy. And they, what they wanted to do is basically switch over their idea of planning from, you know, something that was, like, the hard Stalinist, you know, we're going to start up these giant spreadsheets for everything. And more, you know, we'll kind of try and, like, develop a functional economy that we keep with the, the – basically, the plan is the cage and the economy is the bird. And the bird can fly uh, around as much as it wants inside the cage. Uh, I get it. I thought it was when uh... – um, you know, the, the femi part of a gay couple cross-dresses in order to fit in uh, <laughs> in, a, in a 70s no, 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 no. film. Okay, I see. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, so... Uh, like, and that's that seems to be the difference, um, is that, yeah, dude, like... Otherwise, and he basically says, like, if, if this kind of stuff worked, like, all the third world countries would all be, like, these ca advanced capitalist utopias and not these, right. you know... <laughs> Fucking hell hellscapes, yeah. Yes, exactly. A capitalist, like, he, he basically says hellscape, right? Like, it's like capitalist less, nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Essentially. Um, but what's, I mean, what I keep thinking about with China, and I, this is something I want to research more, is, like, it does seem like, in a lot of ways, though, they were only able to do what they did precisely because of the existence of the Soviet Union. You know? mm. I mean, they, they had their protracted people's war or whatever, but the guns were coming from the Soviet Union. And China was able to kind of deal with the United States because the Soviet Union was always enemy number one, period. Well, well right, but that, that's, that's not exactly, like, 
thanks to the Soviet Union, that was because, like, their relations broke down and they decided to just say, fuck it, like, we're going to your worst enemy and, and we're going to become best buds. Like, right, but the point is they were able to triangulate that way precisely yes. because the Soviet Union existed. Be- because the existence of the Soviet Union. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's definitely true. Like, but the Soviet Union doesn't have that same kind of latitude. But what's, what's insane to me was that in the later stages of the negotiation, and Brenner alludes to this, that they were basically trying to secure these huge loans from the West in exchange for opening up, and they hoped they could use those loans oh, yeah. to buy off the working class to get some time. But again, that seems like... They can't pay those loans. Like, well, they can't pay those loans, and it's also you're just negotiating from a bad position at that point. Like, you get the bag first, right? Part of why, like, something even like, you know, Brexit was such a disaster, because it's like, if you if you have to do this thing, and you go and make the deal, you're going to get the shittiest deal you could possibly it's, imagine. It's, yeah. No, it's it's so funny. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a ridiculous thing. Like... It, the, I haven't heard anything about Brexit recently. It sounds like a bunch of bureaucrats being forced to do something they don't want to do that's going to like make everything worse. Yeah, I'm not a huge Ianucci fan, but I feel like he would be the guy to make like the show about that. Ianucci. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He did um he did uh you know, he did like uh Veep and what's that British show called again? Oh man, that that sounds like yeah. Oh, uh Yes Minister? No, there's another one. Oh god, what is it? The thick of it. The thick of it. Okay, I don't think I've seen that one. You've seen Yes Minister, though, right? Is that the one where it's like the sitcom or something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that looks... I saw... I've only seen clips of it, like, in Adam Curtis movies, and it looks bad. Oh, no. It's very good. It's a very... It's very good. The the third season's kind of heavy-handed. Like, there's... Like, oh, you know, it's definitely, like, a a bit of a, a, a... Like a... A, like a Thatcher light kind of like send up of bureaucracy, but like yeah, that's the impression I got. Yeah, but it was, but it's, but it's amazing. Like the, the problem with it is that it's fucking, it's fucking really good, <laughs> and you know, it's just making, it's just making fun of shitty politicians, like, and and like shitty bureaucracies, which you know, the real thing is though, I don't, I don't really like British sitcoms. Ah, uh, never mind. X, X yeah, that just, whole X that whole thing. It's over. <laughs> it's over for you. I just you. don't they're just not funny. I'm sorry. Like the the audience is always laughing like way too loud. Like they go even harder than they do in America, like on the laugh track. It's all it's obnoxious. It's a good right. one. I'm telling you. Like that that one is a funny sitcom. If you want to see like a well written British sitcom, yes, Minister. Like it's it's pretty good. But then again, I have a taste for the Brits. It's uh, something Robert Brenner wouldn't appreciate. You'll never catch him watching <laughs> Yes Minister or listening to the Beatles. There's no one more anti-British. Few people know this, but Robert Brenner's uh, theory about, you know, demonic Britain is also accompanied by a personal ethnic <laughs> hatred of, yeah. of Britons. <laughs> Good for him, honestly. You do, if you had to pick a group, you could do worse. <laughs> Yeah, I mean yeah. that's also just also like good classic, you know, communist politics. Yeah, well, it's it's proper anti-imperialism. It's the evil, it's yeah. evil British, yeah, evil <laughs> British empire. Evil British uh, theory. What, what were we talking about? Oh right, yeah. Oh yeah, they're they're basically trying to yeah get money to for more freedoms and them, but it just yeah. But at that point, you've, yeah, you've already kind of given it away. Whereas you know, China like kind of cut a deal first when they didn't really have to. 
And so then we're able to like manage their integration of the world market in a way on a more of an even keel. Yeah. So between that and, and they kind of like opened themselves up to marketization and stuff and experimented with it slower, like much slower. Like, right. They didn't just, they didn't, they didn't seem to labor under the impression that there was like a big switch somewhere that says capitalism. You just have, you try to turn it on for everything at the same time. Right. Right. Which again, you know, it's, there's a ship of Theseus thing. If you don't think that the beginning state is capitalism and you do think that the end state is capitalism, you know, where's the switch? What, you know, which grain of sand makes it the pile, you know, like, I I just sort of wonder like where granularly policy by policy would I really feel like that capitalism is is you know restored in China in some way like I'm sure Maoists have devoted quite a lot of time to this yeah no it, I mean there's there's a whole question there I think maybe the other thing that might have also helped is that the Soviet Union tried to make this jump after like decades of like stagnation and probably pent up frustration whereas like you know Deng Xiaoping comes to power on the heels of like a series of like massive social upheavals that were probably on some level not something that people wanted to revisit Mm -hmm. in the immediate future you know yeah they were kind of big big social traumas in a way if you can deliver some moderate increases in standard of living and just basic social stability in a time like that, like you're doing pretty good. So I guess I answered my own question to a certain extent, but I still want to look at the details of it more because I want to have like a more, yeah, like a more granular ex- examination of like the dynamics of the society, especially contra the Soviet Union. Well, I, yeah, I think we've gone like a, between, you know, that sort of economic fade up factor through triangula- triangulation and just the fact that they they never had a fucking glasnost. It's all perestroika, no glasnost over in China. Like they still have, you know, Leninist party state, like you know, a tight grip on the media, like a tight grip on culture, political rights. There is no flirtation with that. That's why you know Xi is sort of a centrist figure in the great Clinton-Stalin tradition. Um, <laughs> You don't hear that on many left-wing podcasts, but here we are. Um, but, you know, he can, like, you know, play off of the left and right in his country that way. One of the problems, like, with the disintegration of the USSR here is that, like, like the entire purpose of the bureaucracy and the party was to... That was the place where all of these different, like, social disputes were settled to the extent that they were, could be settled or, or disputed, you know? And if you... And that is... And... and it functions because that's the thing that controls, you know, the the entire economy. Yeah. And so it's very hard to to disentangle those things in a way, especially without, you know, some kind of coherent, gradually developed popular uprising. You know, because the Soviet system was so had to basically exploit in the way that it did, mm. it pre- it prevents the working class from forming like a coherent polity almost by accident in a way um whereas you know it seems like in the west that's almost that occurs in an almost like more economistic and organized way because it's capitalism <laughs> like it has this like 
the set of pressures that in the Soviet Union, it sounds like the worst. It's like, come join the Comrades Workers Association where we could, you know, like, and it'd be like communist church in like a bad way. You know what I mean? Like where everything is themed after this stuff. So like, oh, you know, why do you, you know, there becomes this Foucauldian dimension where it's like inviting you to, you know, be a socialist in a way that makes you not want to be a part of the club. Whereas like in capitalism, you have to fight for workers' solidarity and shit. Like it's a way, it's, it's just a way different dynamic. Not to mention all the economic stuff. Like I'm not saying that's the main thing, but like, you know, politically, like that's, that, that can't be underestimated. Like that's a, that's a factor. Like it, it took a lot of people with socialist values and, you know, made them, you know, not really want to associate with the formal, expression of socialism like it you know created us and you know there this was part of what was driving solidarity is that like it like at least at first is that you know people did have socialist values and were loyal to this idea it's kind of like the way american liberals can be or you know they it's not like they want to tear up the constitution like like we do um you know, they they just want to like renew the American project or whatever, right? Like they're lo- they're essentially loyalists in a way. Like a lot of these people were that way about the cause of socialism, which you know, what however you know problematic the starting point, like puts them in like a pretty good camp, like, and it's just that, yeah. I, I guess at this point, like, you would have had to have like a pretty big revolutionary wave that was more I don't know that was more coordinated and had more of a social brain because I've really struggled with this and I kind of do feel like this is a revolutionary wave because I don't really feel like that the the Soviet model is a isn't it is like a form of a viable form of of advanced industrial society like it was never able to make the jump. And I think Brian yeah, Brenner gets it right. It was never able to make the jump towards intensive development that, you know, when you're looking at productivity levels at a certain point, the graph gets like crazy exponential and like hitting that point and accelerating to that point is what makes is the, the dynamism of capitalism, all, you know, all that crap. Like that's, that's what it is. And like, you have to be able to make that jump. Um, you know, to be a viable system in, in an advanced economy. So in a way, like, I don't know, like, obviously the fucking collapse of all these people's standard of living is fucking terrible. Like, there's no getting around it. When you look at the statistics, it's it's a devastating social trauma. Like, it was like a war happened. You know, you saw yeah. the kind of like drops in, in, you know, standards of living, life expectancy, all that stuff that you would normally expect from a war. Uh, alcohol, uh, alcoholism rates, like diseases of despair. Like, yeah, I mean, and they still haven't f- like fully recovered from that. No, no. And they, they still don't have the fucking political liberty. That, that's, <laughs> they didn't get it. They that, didn't that's get the any saddest, of it. That's the saddest. I, I think that's like one of the saddest stories of all, because there is like a sort of Spartan story that you could tell about, you know, the greatness of liberty and how it's, you know, you're, you know, you should be willing to fight for liberty, even if it puts you in a more like in, in a place you have to rely on yourself instead of on like the state or what you could tell a nice moral story about that, but fucking look at their disgusting, corrupt regimes that like have a lot of personal continuity 
with the nomenclatura in the party before. So if it's motivated by hatred of that stratum, you don't even get points. Like it, the whole thing is very grim. Like and the- well, and there's the mo- I just want to quote the most chilling part of this essay too, if I can, real quick. Um, he just goes to the degree that collective solution organized collective solutions organized on a class basis fail to emerge. One should not be at all be surprised to see a turn to solutions organized on very different bases, primordial ties of nationality, ethnicity, and religion, directed not so much at against, not so much against two powerful domestic class opponents as against quote external enemies such as Jews. Uh, this is the ground on which authoritarian politics thrive, and uh, Lekwasia in particular has demonstrated it all too well. Yeah, he sees this coming immediately as well. That because this opening up does lead to a kind of Western assault, like on these nationalities, um, like the very thing that the the yeah the very kind of like barrack socialism thing that they developed in order to guard against this stuff is still there, and so it makes sense that you know again far from like you know discrediting these people's sense of national 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 identity, it would, it would intensify it into like a fever pitch. Yeah, because they've taken away like something very distinctive about their way of life, even if they hated it. Right. And then replaced it with something that was like that, you know, they're they're just getting less out of it. Like at the end of the day, even if, you know, OK, you know, I, yeah, I could say this, I can say that. But like the entire economic basis of my world has dropped out. Like that's, you know, those two things aren't interchangeable. They're like both important. <laughs> like, uh, And I found that I found another quote about. Yeah, he basically goes, um. Gorbachev's aim has been to fully cash the party, reform it, and use it as the instrument of his policy, but using glassness to secure control over the party contradicts the very essence of the party, rendering it ineffective for Gorbachev's ends. The party was the instrument through which the bureaucracy organized itself to rule the society. It could only serve that end so long as the political factions inside the bureaucracy were willing to settle their disputes within the party's confines. Yeah, so limiting the party's authority destroys the whole society. <laughs> essentially i finally at the point where i'm at the horseshoe and i see what the anti-revisionists say you know that like you know undoing comrade stalin's great reforms you know her you know great achievements will be the undoing of our system that these are in fact the foundations of the system i actually do see that i think that's right like and i think brenner's not coming at it from the anti-revisionist perspective or whatever but it this is something I started to appreciate when, you know, looking at the Maoists that are against contemporary China, you know, like, it's like, okay, their theory makes sense to me. I, I don't know if I want to, like, hang out with them, but, like, I see where they're going here. Like, this is a different system. And without this, like, extre- this extremely violent, like, insane political culture, like, y- you can't have it. Like, it, there is... <sighs> Other than that, there's nothing systematic that, that you know, I mean, I'm, not that I think that the, that's a viable system outside of, like, yeah, it looks like a human lifespan, uh, you know, a, a really good one, like, someone who took their vitamins and shit. It seems like that's how long that lasts. But, like, it, it was its own system, you know, like, it's not just something like hybrid regime that's basically about, you know, just this that's you know basically already capitalism like it's it's like an alternate path of development than that sort of uh south korea singapore model that we were describing essentially yeah 
Yeah, it's a, it's an alternate path of development that is historically situated, mm-hmm. which makes the whole thing very tricky. Right. One of the variants of like state capitalist theory greatly overstates the extent to which it was, let's say, subject to the world market, but it was subject to existing in the world. Mm-hmm. And the 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 arrangements there, like I said, in terms of like imperialism, global geo strategy, and to a certain extent, the world market, will have an effect on you know how it how it develops and constitutes itself, and what kind of pressures are put on it. Um, you know, like that's where. You know, maybe it wasn't a worker state, but there was some kind of deformation going on here that made it very difficult for them to, you know, the very thing that necessitates socialism in one country makes it impossible. Yeah. This is a pretty, has has he written more about this? I I haven't been able to find anything. It's it's killing me because this is like the most sensible shit (laughs) about this. And I want to see more, at least in this vein, you know, that's using these kind of, um, you know, underlying, like, kind of modeling to get a grip on the rationality of the system. I'm sure this work is being done. just don't know what it is right now. It's probably not being done under, like, Marxist terms right now. Anything else? Are, are we good? There's the, Gor- there's the Gorby chat. Gorby not sending in the tanks. Right? Another anti-revisionist talking point. Another, you know, horseshoe theory thing with tankies and, like, uh, anti-general cartel socialists, right? Like, not sending in the tanks on Hungary and Poland. Uh, Brenner also points to (laughs) as, like, you know, an implicit, like, you know, sort of just implicitly, like, allowing this to happen. Well, yeah, he even says that he was trying to play it off uh, to use against, like, the conservatives, you know, in his own party. So, so, now that, that's so depressing, right? Like, in his, like, uh, he's trying to, like, out do some political gymnastics, outmaneuver his opponents, and he destroys the country. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's, uh... Oh man! I mean, talk about an externality. I mean, he's you know usually one of those guys that's just like a seems like a trim, you know. I mean, honestly, my hope was that like Bernie could have been our Gorbachev, <laughs> you know, like uh, the one who basically like destroys the empire. Yeah. Uh, you know, in in trying to reform it, like that would have I would have been fine with that. We can all eat at communist pizza hut. At the end. Sometimes nothing brings people together like a nice hot pizza from Pizza Hut. Yeah. I, I keep, yeah. Like, well, in the, you know, the Pizza Hut and Taco Bell and KFC would be broken up into their own, like, separate uh, fast food chains. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he, I think, I think, uh, you know, he's like, but he does kind of remind me of Bernie that's like, sort of like a fundamentally decent person, but maybe, mm-hmm. maybe not the best, uh, Maybe not the most uh, deft statesman <laughs> this system's ever produced. There's a real tragedy to Gorby. Should I, should I, should I close the Gaddafi quote? Go to the, <laughs> you're gonna pull out the green book. Well, no, this, this is from thump- that saying. This is, uh, this is from his final it. speech. Always thumping it. Oh yeah. All right. In the West, some have called me mad, crazy, but they know the truth. Yet continue to lie. They know that our land is independent and free, not in the colonial grip. 
that my vision, my path is and has been clear, and for my people, and that I will fight to my last breath to keep us free. May Allah Almighty help us to remain faithful and free. Omar Gaddafi. For one million people demonstrated in Tripoli in support of Gaddafi against Obama's attack on Libya on July 1st, 2011. <laughs> Alright. Cue dead press. That's it for this week. If you'd like to support the show, hit up our Patreon. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at swapsidechads at gmail.com or uh, hit us up on any of the number of social media platforms that we are on. Uh, yeah. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>